Almighty Father God, maker of heaven and earth, you are good. Your presence is our only joy and satisfaction. You are the Lord, God in heaven, and yet you bid us to call you Father, Savior, Comforter. Blessed be your name. We confess, Lord, this morning our attempts to find good and joy in this world alone. You created us and placed us in your creation to enjoy and to remind us of your goodness. And yet we turn away from you. We rebel and insist to live for the creation instead of bowing before you, our good creator. If your creation can bring us such good things, though fleeting, then how much more must your eternal goodness satisfy our weary Languishing souls, turn us, Lord Jesus, to trust this morning by the power of your Spirit that we may drink deeply of your goodness provided for us in Christ. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and cause our hearts to rejoice, I pray. To rejoice in your goodness toward us. Do these things this morning. For your good namesake, O Lord Jesus, our sufficient, our satisfying, our glorious Savior, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis is likely most known by his children's books that he wrote. Many of us have either read the books or seen the movies. He's also pretty well known by another book called Mere Christianity, a pretty well-known book for those who know C.S. Lewis. A far less well-known book that he's written that I would commend to you is a book entitled The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. It's a small paperback. And in the beginning of this book, he tells us something that is quite shocking. He makes a claim that's quite incredible. He says, Our souls desire pleasure and we are insistent we're tenacious in our pursuing after pleasure we go after it every waking moment of our lives and sometimes even our sleeping moments we are strong in our desire to pursue pleasure but then he goes on and he says and yet the problem with us isn't that our desires for pleasure are too strong but instead that they are too weak Lewis states it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He's British, so holiday means vacation. A vacation at the sea. And then he goes on and says, We are far too easily pleased. We're pleased. We we want to allow this world to please our souls. And each and every one of you here this morning knows your heart has told you over and over again, it hasn't happened. And you're wondering whether it will. 
this morning by the testimony of the scriptures, we're going to find that as you and as I, as we pursue the things of this world, looking in them for the good that will satisfy our souls, they will leave us languished. They will not not fill our souls. They will not satisfy us. But they will do what every single thing you have tried up to this point has done. It's left you empty. Left you unable to see clearly what really will satisfy your soul. Kohelet. It's a strange name. But it's the name of the one who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. You see here, it says, the words of the preacher. That word preacher in the Hebrew is the, word for, is the, is the, title, the Hebrew title Kohelet. And it's actually speaking of a preacher, but it can easily be misunderstood. He's not speaking here of a preacher like, like me who week in and week out gets up and preaches from a pulpit. No, the idea of a preacher here that he's speaking of, this one that's called Kohelet, is one who gathers God's people for the purpose or the intention of instilling or imparting in them wisdom. And so, specifically, this one who is Kohelet, that's his name, I'm going to refer to him in that way, or the preacher, that is the the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Most, and I assume that it was Solomon himself, but he doesn't name himself in this book. Kohelet is seeking to impart wisdom specifically on this very matter, the meaning of life. The meaning of life. He makes a pretty severe claim, if you will. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a pretty severe claim. He's making a truth claim here. He's saying, he's looked in all the world and everything is vanity. It's it's like vapor. It's here for a moment, but just for a very moment. And then it drifts away. There's no substance in life. He continues, and he asks a question, the very question that you've asked your own soul many times, I dare say, this week. And it is this, in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he goes on, this one Kohelet, or the preacher, in verse 3, and says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All the fervent and frantic working and doing and placing your hands to the task this week, what good was it? What good was all of the toil, all of the effort, all of the energy that you put forward this week for all of the things that God has called you to and all the people that God's put put in front of you? What was the gain of that? So he begins after that question in the rest of chapter 1 and throughout the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, he begins testing this truth claim that all is vanity And he begins answering this question, what gain is there in all the toil and all the things that we do? Chapter 1, we've already worked through over the last several weeks. And this morning, we're turning to chapter 2. And we're looking together at another area or category that Kohelet wants us to test and consider to see, is there any substance in this? And of all places, this morning in chapter 2, the preacher is saying, Let's test pleasure. Let's test the pursuit of pleasure and see if it will bring any substance, any meaning, any real value to our lives. You and I know this test very well. 
Our hearts have already been a part of that. We've tried this. Some of you this morning are sitting here in the midst of this very test in your life. Can the world bring pleasure? Are there, is there, a, is there a, another person in this world that can make me happy? Is there a job that can make me happy? Is there an item or trinket can, that can make me happy? Is there something that can satisfy my soul? Well, this morning, we're going to place pleasure to the test. And I want us to notice this morning in our text, verses 1 through 11, I want us to notice it in three different points. We're going to run on tracks this morning. These tracks will be the three different points in the sermon. These three points are these. Point number one, pleasure pursued. Pleasure pursued, verses 1 through 3. Point number two, pleasure produced. Pleasure produced, verses 4 through 8. And then point number three, pleasure proved. Pleasure proved, verses 9 through 11. Pleasure pursued, pleasure produced, and then pleasure proved. So let's look together then at our first point, pleasure pursued. We see that Kohelet, this man, has made a decisive choice. He is not half-hearted here. He is not dilly-dallying with different things and trying to test all kinds of things. No, he is focused in. He's saying, I'm going to set my heart to do something specific. I'm going to test this thing, pleasure. He's going to go after pleasure to see if it can bring meaning and substance and real value to one's life. And then, not only does he decide to do this, but then he calls us as those who have gathered around him to, and have this wisdom imparted to them. He calls us to join him in this test. And I think we can all walk alongside of him as he goes through this test and affirm that these things are evident. They are true. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 1. Here's his decisive choice, his determination to go after pleasure. I said in my heart, you hear that? That's his determination to go after it. Here's his invitation to us to join him in this concerted effort. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. The aim is to determine if there is anything really good to pursue in life. The, another translation where the phrase here in the ESV says, enjoy yourself. Another translation translates that as to find out what is good. In other words, this phrase, enjoy yourself, speaks of what, 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 me, what we may call today the good life. He's saying, let's go after the good life. Brothers and sisters, there is not one of you here this morning, including myself, who has ever been told to do that. And, yes, and yet you have. And yet, something in your heart springs up and says, yes, I want to go after the good life. That's what I want. That's what my heart desires. That's what I would pursue if I could. We are hardwired to search for the good. The good. It's nebulous. It's hard to discern. It's hard to place our hands on it. But what is that good? We know we want it. And we know it has to be out there. For us to obtain. So we test everything around us. Convinced that something must produce this good life. It must. Because if not, then it's pretty hopeless. 
life is pretty, pretty dark. This is not the case. There has to be. There has to be something that is good that we can give our lives to. What the preacher here in Ecclesiastes finds is that much the same from what he found in chapter 1 when he went after wisdom. He pursued wisdom and said, could wisdom give substance and meaning to my life? And he says, it can't. It's all vanity. Here, he tells us after he calls us to come and to join him in this testing of pleasure, to enjoy ourselves, to pursue this good life. Notice what it says in the verse 1. He says, but behold. In other words, recognize this. Understand this. You, you know this is true. This also, along with that which is in chapter 1, this also is vanity. It's a vapor. Pleasure has no substance. It is here for a fleeting moment, and then it's gone. Everyone here who has experienced Christmas as a child know that's true. That gift that you had to have, my entire life will change when I get that skateboard. And it's in the driveway two weeks later, if that means nothing. It's a vapor. Pleasure. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes says, pleasure has no substance. We know that our hearts are hardwired to search for, to test this world around us for something that will restore our souls, something that will bring joy and satisfy our constantly longing and restless souls. We know those are there. Is there something, somewhere, some way that we can have so that we can be happy? Is there some light that can push back the shadow of dread? Is there some wind that can blow away the stifling smog of our hopelessness? Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2 repeats this determination that this preacher has as he declares his decisive choice to continue in his pursuit of the good life. Where can this good life come from? How can we experience the satisfied and joyed life? Well, isn't it obvious? Wouldn't it be obvious to us if we were going to do this? If we were going to set ourselves to this test, who should we go to? Well, let's go to the persons that are always laughing. Let's go after the comedians. Let's look at those who seem to be enjoying life. They're, they're laughing all the time. Or maybe let's go to the rich. Those who have everything. Let's look to them and see if there's real joy in what they have. The comedian, the rich, verse 2. It says, I said to laughter, it is mad. And to pleasure, what use is it? Every time I read that verse, I think of Robert Williams. He made me laugh. It was hilarious. He hung himself in his home in a community called Paradise Key. If you look at it in a picture, it is amazing, glorious, and it's beauty. None of us have a place like he had. Comedian, filthy rich, hung himself in his bedroom. Because laughter is mad. Pleasure is useless. The conclusion here in these arenas is that laughter, this desire that many of us want to have, to have this lighthearted, 
always take it easy kind of lifestyle, where comfort is the aim, where amusement and game is what we pursue, that's what our lives are lived for. The person who is constantly looking for the next party, if you're single, or the next vacation, if you're married. This person is mad. This person is a crazy person, according to the scriptures. This person is delusional because they're pretending, because life is not about those things. And we know it's true. You've come home from enough vacations worn out to know that they don't do what you think they're supposed to do. So if laughter is madness and deranged, then we look then to pleasure and we see that here he says, he estimates the fact, he says, pleasure is useless. What use is it? I want to remind you of the aim here. What is he after? He's after that which is good. He's saying, I'm after the good life. I'm after the good. I want my life to be content. I want to be satisfied. I want to have a fulfilled life. This is his aim. As we notice in verse 1. He searched with all of his heart. Verse 3. Verse 3. Kohelet continues to press into pleasure to see if there is something of substance there. And like many in our day, as he does this, the pressing into pleasure has to be numbed. Because if all there is is the pleasure that's around us, and the more he dives in, the more he realizes it's, it's not even close to satisfying his soul. We have to numb ourselves from this reality because if all there is is what's around me and none of this is satisfying my soul, then I need to be numb. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine because the pleasures weren't cheering his body. Now, we need to be careful here. I'm not saying this just because I'm Baptist. The text itself says that he did not give himself to the degree that he was so overwhelmed by drinking that he did not forget his aim. He continued to be aware and focused of what he was after, even as he cheered his body with wine. It says here, my heart still guided me with wisdom. Do you see that there? In other words, he wasn't just trying to be a sloppy drunk. He was actually saying, there's so many who go after this as if this will make them happy, and it will not. I'm finding that it just won't. Again, I hope you see that as I'm, as I'm teaching this, as I'm showing you this in Scripture, this is true because God's Word says it, but you and I know it's true because many of us have lived it. We know people who are doing these very things. Second, he said his heart grasped onto folly, determining if it would prove to provide the good life. Let's just be... Let's just play video games. Let's just go after things that don't matter. Let's just do whatever our mind tells us to do. Let's just, just, whenever we turn, we go after whatever's in front of us. Day after day, we have a new aim and a new end. Till I might see what was good for the children of man. Do you see that there in verse 3? According to this preacher, he said, he said the life of folly is, 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 is evident to those who realize that life is short. Let's go hard and fast after everything we can get today because, look at the end of verse 3, during the few days of their life. Life is short. We did a funeral yesterday. It's always interesting to do funerals. 
we live our lives as if, as if everybody else is going to die. Death is at 100%. None of us are going to make it out of here alive. All of us are going to close our eyes and face our maker. We need to, we need to be sober about that. Here, he says, that there are those who take on the ancient, made modern mantra of seize the day. Carpe diem. Go after it. You've heard that. You've even believed that. Some of you have even lived that. So this is how he plans to pursue, to test pleasure. By tasting its fruits, by experiencing what it has to offer. Here, the Kohelet, the preacher, is saying, I'm going to dive in, I'm going to see, I'm going to experience, I'm going to taste all that there is. And so now we move from the pursuit, pleasure pursued, verses 1 through 3, to point number 2, pleasure produced. Pleasure produced, verses 4 through 8. Look with me. When we understand the intention that he has and the method by which he's going to pursue these pleasures, now we're going to turn to understand just how extensive and extravagant this one, the preacher, the Kohelet, was willing to go in order to pursue that which he was after. How serious was he about seeing if pleasure could bring meaning? He was resourced in such a way that this man was able to pursue pleasure in ways that every one of us, in the, in the sound of my hearing, could only dream about. We have no ability to pursue these things like he did. Look at the accomplishments that he did. Now, I want to back up and say this. Um, this one, Kohelet, he, he's, not, um, he's not some lowlife. He's, he's not some foolish teenager that gets a bunch of money and just goes out and blows it to see how much he can buy. He, he's not the prodigal son here. He's not simply foolishly squandering everything he has. No, he has an aim and an end. He's going after something. He's testing pleasure to see what it can do and whether it can bring meaning. His pursuit is an experiment. It's measured and sophisticated. And we'll see as he produces these things that he's not just simply haphazardly, just just randomly doing all kinds of crazy stuff and just blowing his money. No, he's after an aim. He's attempting to find meaning and joy and substance for life in his toil and labor, and in his great achievements. Can there be something there? The preacher's accomplishments can be divided, or I'm going to divide them loosely. They're they're loose categories just so we can walk through the passage. Category one are the things that he made or built. This is in verses four through six. And then category two are the things that he purchases or possesses. This is verses seven through eight. Look with me. First, the things that he, he made. It says in verse 4, I made great works. Do you see that there in verse 4? It's common for kings of any age to be about great building projects. And the, the, the bigger and the, most, the more amazing the building project, the more greatness and authority that it would display and reflect on the king. And so every king establishes his kingdom And he builds these extravagant, amazing things to display his authority, his power, his wisdom. Same here for Solomon, Kohelet, the preacher. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses 
and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now remember the aim. He's going after, I need to enjoy myself. I need to have the good life. I want that which is good. The preacher is seeking good by making great works before all of us. He wants to show us how amazing he is. And this desire for good, the good life, seems to be, as I mentioned earlier, something that is natural to all of us, not just this man. We understand this. We would do the same if we had the resources. Why is that so? Let's ask that question. Why is it that all of us have this in us and we know it's true? What makes us want this good? What is it that is it, with all of our differences and all of our various desires for all kinds of things, why is it that each and every one of us can, can see the common denominator of a heart that's desiring to be satisfied? Why do our hearts long to be satisfied and to make possessions and the things of the world and the things that we can create the aim of our satisfaction? I think we can see something of it here. And if we evaluated each of our lives, we can see something of it in our lives as well. But let's look at the, let's look at the preacher this morning. Because it's a lot, lot less embarrassing than to put our lives before each other, right? Let's look at what he builds and then what he does. Many of these concepts, in fact, most of these concepts that are here in this passage. Let me read them to you again, just, just the terms themselves. Made, planted, gardens... All kinds of fruit trees, water or to water, watered, growing. Do you know where those terms come from? Those terms come from Genesis 1 and 2. They come from Genesis 1 and 2. And in this way, it seems that Kohelet is trying to recreate Eden for himself. He's trying to look for something good by recreating now write that word down recreate he's looking for good by recreating recreating and he's pursuing good so that when he is done with all of the things he's done he can look over his kingdom and what does he want to say it is good what does God say at Genesis and end of Genesis chapter 1 Almighty God, when he created everything in six days, he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. However, isn't it obvious here that when Kohelet decided to recreate and when we decide to recreate, we are seeking an Eden without God. And we're wanting the good without the God who is the giver of all good things. The fact that the king of Ecclesiastes is attempting to be God and recreate for himself a substitute for goodness, something that's somewhat like that, is just like you and me. When we live our lives trying to be glad, trying to find joy, trying to find satisfaction, in the things of this world instead of in the 
giver of all good things. You see, this morning, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to tell you have a garage sale and your life will be better. You and I both know that we can sell everything that we own. We can get rid of all the stuff that's in our lives and our hearts will still be empty. The point here is that how can we take the things that God has given to us and we can use them as gifts and to be stewards of them as if God gave them to us and we can enjoy them for what they are, not as ends to be relished and worshipped and bowed down to, but instead as gifts that we can enjoy and look to our God because he is the maker of all good things. I hope you see this morning, I'm not trying to take something from you. I'm trying to show you, I'm trying to give you the good. I'm trying to show you that that which is good is in God. These are the great works that he did. Look with me as well at the great possessions that he purchased and he bought, verses 7 through 8. This is the next, again, rough grouping here, just so we can work through the passage. Verses 7 and 8 says this, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Anything, anything, at any, amount, at any amount that he needed or wanted, this man had it. He had access to it. Now, in our foolishness, many of us have convinced ourselves that the reason we're not satisfied with the things that we have is because we need more of them. I don't need just a job. I need a job making more money. I don't need another spouse. I just need a better spouse. I don't need more kids. I just need better kids. Right? I, in other words, you're, you're trying to say, well, what's really the problem is, is that all of these things I have are diminished in some way. And if I had more of this, then somehow I can be happy. That's the foolishness of our own hearts. This man shows us that you can have all of everything that you could possibly want. And if we could only have greater quantities of this world, then our soul will be satisfied is a lie. It says here the preacher had great possessions. You see that there? And here we need to recognize what is hard to miss in these verses. All of this was for his personal gain. Did you notice that in verses 4 through 8, the constant I, my, myself in these verses... I mean, look back over it. Allow your eyes just to glance back over verses 4 through 8. And you can see there that this man was self-consumed, narcissistic. His interests were only for his own. He was saturated with making himself personally satisfied. And I could go through the list and explain all of these things. I'm sure there's sermons to be had to try to work through some of these different things. But... Let's not get distracted by all of the different stuff and simply say that in these verses, we know all too well all of the things that he drank deeply of. We know because we have comparisons in our world today of all of these wants. Slavery, gold, treasure, women, concubines, singers, all of these things. 
We have all of them in our world today. Let me be more pointed and let's be very clear here. We have all of these in our own hearts. In our hearts. The problem isn't on Atlantic Boulevard. The problem isn't at the beach. The problem is in your heart. Your own heart is the problem. This man was successful. He had great achievements. He was accomplished. He would be able to buy Twitter from the man who wants to buy Twitter. Right? But did this pursuit and these things bring meaning and push back the vanity in his life? Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Pleasure proved. Pleasure proved. Verses 9 through 11. Listen to what this honest and fervent pursuit for meaning and pleasure, what did it prove? Look with me at verses 9 through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done in the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The question keeps lingering in the background, doesn't it? The question of chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What does he gain? We see here the term toil several times in our passage in verses 9 through 11. All that my hands have done is also mentioned there in that passage. Emphasizing the fact that he worked diligently, fervently. He went after it. He did all that he needed to do. I'm reminded of the question that Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, asked God's people in Isaiah 55.2. Listen to this question he asked. In Isaiah 55.2, he says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Listen to this last phrase. And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Isaiah is saying, Why are you working so frantically? And it never satisfies. Kohelet is saying that his tests and his search for meaning and the good and pleasure was unsurpassed and unhindered in every way. Do you see here that he did find some pleasure in our passage? Some pleasure was found in the good of his work. He says, and this was my reward for all of my toil. The, the good feeling that one gets after working all day, coming home, taking a shower, falling into bed, and right before you go to sleep, you know everything you did, you did because God called you to do it. And you did it as faithfully as you possibly could. And you fall asleep at night and you think, today was a good day. That's a good gift. That's a great gift that we have. So many of us think that work is a is a horrible thing. It's something we shouldn't do or do everything we can to not work. No, the Lord gave Adam and Eve work before sin entered into the world. 
Work is a good gift from God. God calls us to do that. We're supposed to be people that work because we're image bearers. And so the difficulty and the frustration that comes with work, all of us know it, isn't because work is bad. It's because work is, just like everything else, corrupted by sin. It has the effects of sin in it. I want you to see here that this man, this preacher, did what we could not do. He had the resources and the ability to do what verses 9 through 11 say, and we can't do that. We can't do that. We've, we've hurt people in our lives. We've begged, bartered, and stole so that we can have these things in verses 9 through 11. But he didn't have to do any of those things. He had access to all of that. And I want you to allow verse 11. Look with me if you will. Put your finger on verse 11. And I want the truth of verse 11 to land on us this morning. Listen to verse 11 as I read it together. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing, nothing to be gained under the sun. So what does pursuit of pleasure prove? It proves this, that hedonism is an empty pursuit. But I want to be clear here this morning as well. We're going to find out later in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you come back and walk with us as we continue through the book of Ecclesiastes. But as we work through that, we're going to find that though hedonism does not work, something else doesn't work either. And this may surprise you. Hedonism doesn't work, but moralism doesn't work either. Being a good person, living your life, doing the things you need to do, going to work, coming to home, taking care of all the stuff you need to take care of. Later on, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes will say, that's just as vain as hedonism. There's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no deliverance in being a good person. Many of you grew up thinking that Christianity was ultimately or finally about you not being a hedonist. In other words, deny the world and everything in it. And instead, just be a good person. Love your spouse. Take care of your kids. Go to work. Pay your bills. That's what Christianity is about. That's a lie. That's not Christianity. It never has been. Christianity is not moralism. It's not simply just being good. If you hang out with us very long, you'll realize that. You'll realize that. We're not very lovable. And we find it very hard to be good. The preacher wants us to feel the sadness, the vanity, and the deep sorrow of all of this. Why? Why would, we, why would he want to confront us with such hopelessness this morning? Listen, hear me. Because he wants us to have a sense of just how far we have wandered away from Eden. From the very good that we, humanity, had when we walked in the garden with our God. 
and we were lavished with all of the goodness of who he is. The very good that our hearts earnestly long for is that. Because we're all image bearers and we're all in Adam and Eve. And we all long for that day when we can return to the place when we can be with our God and our maker. Unhindered by sin and to know the good that he is. And this is why this sermon this morning is about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if everything under the sun, or in this world, as the Ecclesiastes often says, under the sun, if everything under the sun is all that we have, then we know that we have no no hope of ever having the very good, and our hearts will languish. The presence of God, our maker and our creator, is our only good. And we can only come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Lived a perfect life, went to the grave and raised again to triumph over death and hell and all that this world is pressing upon us. He is our all satisfying good savior and Lord. Let me ask you this question. This question is one that I bring up often. It's in a little book by John Piper entitled God is the Gospel. And here's the question. In the first few pages of that book, he says, If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever sought after and all the physical pleasure you ever wanted to taste, and no human conflict or natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if you had all of those and Christ was not there? That's the question you and I need to ask this morning. Because that's the life many of us are trying to live. We're trying to live a life where we can have all of these things But let's recreate, let's entertain, let's live in folly and madness so that we can deaden the sharp edge of the fact that all is vanity. Come, as the preacher says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I invite you, come now and let us set our hearts. Let's behold the truth this morning. And here's the truth this morning. It was at the end of chapter 16 of the psalm that we read this morning as we started the service. At the end of chapter 16, verse 11, it says this. You make known to me the path of life. He's speaking of God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Do you believe that? That in the presence of God there is fullness of joy? It goes on, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is in God that we find our joy. It is in Him that we'll be satisfied. It is in Him that we know all that is good and right and true and beautiful. And how? How can we know this good? How can we come to this good? How can we drink deeply of this path of life, the fullness of joy, the satisfaction that comes with the very good, being right in relation with our God who made you and created you so that you might be able to enjoy Him as you interact in this creation that He's given to us. As we see the smile of a child, as we feel the breeze of the wind, 
as we enjoy the, the taste of good food. And instead of trying to make those the things we live for, saying, there's a good God in heaven that gives me these things, and I can rejoice because these are only a taste, a, a small sampling of the goodness of God in all of his fullness and glory. I'm just getting a bit of it right now, but one day I'll see him for all he is. How do we approach this God? How do we come to him? Our souls longing for good must, must, by necessity, look to Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. So faith in Christ and the power of his resurrection and the promise of eternal life that he gives to us, this good life for our souls that we're longing for this morning. Let me show you this morning. Let me show you this morning how the resurrection, let me connect these dots and I'm gonna give you some homework. I mean, it is Resurrection Sunday. You don't, you don't need to just come here this morning and then go home and then forget everything. No, you need something for the whole day, right? So I'm gonna give you some homework. I'm gonna close with three application points that I'm gonna give you and some text that go with each one. I'm gonna read those and then I want you to write those down. I want you to go home and I want you to spend time meditating on these. If you don't have a pen, then uh, listen to the sermon again sometime today and then write those down when you have time. Uh, it'll be up sometime just shortly afternoon. Let me connect the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our incessant desire for joy and to be satisfied in our souls. Let's review all three of the points of the sermon and connect it to the resurrection. Point number one in our closing. Pleasure pursued. That was point number one, right? Pleasure pursued only through Christ's resurrection. Pleasure pursued only through Christ's resurrection. This was in verses one through three. And here we see that it is by faith in the resurrection of Christ that we are able to look beyond the things that are around us in this world and to look beyond that. And when we're pursuing good, we don't just look at the things around us in our world, but we look up and we're able to see, wait a minute, I'm not just a biological being that can be explained by science. I have a soul that longs for things that are beyond this world. The resurrection shows us that. The resurrection gives us that glorious hope. Here's the passage. Pleasure pursued only through Christ's resurrection. Here's the passage. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the reference to the resurrection here. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, listen to this wonderful pursuit, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a pursuit! Pleasure pursued only through Christ's resurrection. Point number two, application. Pleasure produced, pleasure produced, that was point number two. Pleasure produced only from Christ's resurrection. Pleasure produced only from Christ's resurrection. Do you look around in our world and say, everything's broken? How many times have you tried to fix something and as you're fixing one thing, something else in your house breaks? Every mom here with kids knows exactly what that looks like, right? It's always falling apart. Why is that so? Pleasure produced. We can't produce. We can't accomplish. We can't be successful. We're always looking for that, but we can't seem to get our hands on it. Why? Because the world and the earth and creation is broken. 
Here's the passage I want you to meditate on. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Romans 8, verses 18 through 23. The resurrection of Christ motivates us that though this world is broken, it is longing for a day when it will be restored. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and it is because Christ raised from the dead. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free. Creation itself will be set free and its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even the creation will be freed for the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The world and the earth is not ultimate and it's not final. Heaven is. And so the resurrection reminds us of that. Point number three, the last point of application is this. Pleasure proved. Pleasure proved. Pleasure proved only in Christ's resurrection. Pleasure proved only in Christ's resurrection. It is by faith in the resurrection of Christ that we can evaluate and prove what is truly worth living for. Evaluating our lives according to whether our kids behave or not, or whether we live a really long life or not, or whether we get that extra job or not. Keep evaluating your lives by that. You're doomed. Man, what a hopeless, worthless life to live if you're living according to the measures this world gives to you. You'll never measure up. How do we measure our lives? Here's the passage. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Bernard read it for us this morning with a better voice than I, actually. I like Bernard's voice. I need your voice, Bernard. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, that I may know him. Listen, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I, by any means possible, may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's pleasure proved only in Christ's resurrection. And being in Christ by faith, all is glory, and striving after his glory. And there is nothing that can be lost because of the surpassing worth the eternal worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, 
Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let us pray together.